this psalm together. Before we do, though, let's once again ask for God's blessing as we hear his word. Our Father, your word is a cornucopia of spiritual victuals to delight our palate and to nourish our souls. Grant that we may ingest and digest the truth of this psalm, that we may love you with all of our strength and return thanks and praise to you with our lips and our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 136. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night. For his mercy endureth forever. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endureth forever. And brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endureth forever. With a strong hand and with a stretched out arm, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endureth forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which smote great kings, for his mercy endureth forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endureth forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endureth forever, and Og the king of Bashan, for his mercy endureth forever, and gave their land for an heritage, for his mercy endureth forever, even an heritage unto Israel his servant, for his mercy endureth forever, who remembered us in our low estate, for his mercy endureth forever, and hath redeemed us from our enemies, for his mercy endureth forever. Who giveth food to all flesh, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of heaven, for his mercy endureth forever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Children. Guys listening up here, have you heard of the Pilgrims? Heard of the Pilgrims? Well, they were called Pilgrims because they were on a journey. But they were not just traveling to visit places and see things. They were on a journey like a quest. A quest to find a land where they could worship God just as the Bible said he was to be worshipped. The pilgrims were from England, but England was trying to make Christians worship 
with forms that the Bible did not teach. And when the pilgrims would not conform to unbiblical worship, the English church and English government punished them. William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth for 30 years, wrote of this in his journal. He said, It is well known unto the godly and judicious how ever since the first breaking out of the light of the gospel in our honorable nation of England, here he's referring to the Protestant Reformation coming to England, ever since then, what wars and oppositions ever since Satan hath raised, maintained, and continued against the saints, sometimes by bloody death and cruel torments, otherwise imprisonments, banishments, and other hard usages, as being loath that his kingdom should go down. The truth prevail, and the churches of God revert to their ancient purity and recover their primitive order, liberty, and beauty. End quote. So for a while, the pilgrims moved to another country, to Holland, where there was more freedom to worship. But they found that Holland didn't just tolerate Christians who wanted to worship according to Scripture. They tolerated lots of other things that were contrary to God's law. They found too much corrupting influence in Dutch society. Sorry, uh, Catalana. Sorry, Hannah. Felicity. So they kept looking for a place where they could devote themselves to God and worship him rightly. See, all, all the faithful Dutch just moved to America too, right? That's what happened. Yeah. Finally, they contracted with a company that wanted to start a venture in the New World. And of course, you kids know that's what they called America back then, right? The New World. Got that? So the pilgrims set sail on what ship? Children? There you go, the Mayflower. In August 1620, they set sail from Plymouth, England on the Mayflower after two failed attempts on a ship called the Speedwell. Yep. Peter Marshall and David Manuel described that voyage based on their visit to a replica of the Mayflower. So this is what they said. Descending into the gloomy interior of the Mayflower too, the replica of the pilgrim's ship, we were shocked at the closeness of the quarters. 102 pilgrims had been crammed into a space about equal to that of a volleyball court. Compound that misery by the lack of light and fresh air because all the hatches had to be battened down because of stormy weather. Add to it a diet of dried pork, dried peas, and dried fish. And I, I know uh, Gabe's going, hmm, that sounds good. But we weren't all sailors. Add to that the stench of an ever fouler bilge and multiply it all by 66 days at sea. And then Bradford described the land that they discovered as a hideous and desolate wilderness. By the end of their first winter, nearly half of them were dead. Marshall and Manuel record the grim statistics this way. They said, when the worst was finally over, they had lost 47 people. They started out with 102. 13 out of 18 wives. 
died. Only three families remained unbroken. Of all the first comers, the children fared the best. Of seven daughters, none died. Of thirteen sons, only three. And the colony, which was young to begin with, was even younger now. In March, the natives, Samoset and Squanto, established relations between the settlers and the local chief, Massasoit. They taught the settlers some planting techniques and supplied them with food out of their own surplus. That autumn, when the harvest was gathered, Governor Bradford declared a day of public thanksgiving. Their gratitude, of course, was directed to Almighty God, whose gracious providence had secured them against the perils of the sea and of the wilderness and even giving them good relations with their native neighbors. Now, think about the pilgrims' gratitude through all that they had suffered and compare that with the grumbling of the Israelites in their wilderness. And you can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our pilgrim forebears. They maintained joy and peace and gratitude even though they suffered many things, including the loss of loved ones. We're reminded of Isaiah 26 in verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusted in thee. Now we come to Psalm 136 and uh, many scholars argue that Psalm 136 has all the marks of a post-exilic composition, which means that it would be written after the Jews returned to Judea after their Babylonian captivity. And so this psalm of thanksgiving was written after the Jews had passed through many hardships. Now, their hardships were uh, self-inflicted in one sense because their exile was God's judgment upon them for their sin and idolatry. And when they returned to their land, it was devastated, in ruin, so it had to be rebuilt. And songs like this were composed to stifle the natural propensity to grumble and complain with that kind of woe is me Nobody knows the trouble I've seen kind of attitude, right? And to encourage gratitude to God. Well, we also have to combat the tendency to grumble and complain, right? In Philippians 2.14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling and complaining. And so how do we drown out our pouting through tough times? with praise to God. Well, Psalm 136 teaches that meditating on God's mercy stimulates gratitude. The word mercy that's repeated 26 times in as many verses in this chapter is the Hebrew term hesed, which refers to God's covenantal grace, faithfulness, love, mercy. It refers to the special favor that God has for his chosen people. In our psalm, God shows us many facets, lots of different aspects of his mercy 
as he calls us to grateful praise. So we'll take a brief look at several attributes of God's mercy that should stir us up to gratitude. So first, give thanks to God for almighty mercy. God's mercy is an almighty mercy. It's an exercise of his omnipotence. Now, children, those of you who uh, memorize the children's catechism, can God do all things? Yes. Yes. You got that part right. God can do all his holy will. Right? That's the shorter catechism. And if God can do all things, then there is no amount of sin that God can't forgive. There's no amount of chaos that he cannot restore to peace. There's no amount of misery that he cannot heal. Now, because God has changed my heart occasionally, I will have mercy and compassion on people in their misery. It doesn't happen often, but occasionally. The thing is, even when I am feeling merciful, I am not all-powerful. I cannot do all my will. Once I was on a hiking trip with a friend in the mountains of North Carolina, and we came to a narrow ridge that was about six inches wide and about 20 feet long. And on both sides of this ridge was just a sheer drop of a few hundred feet. Now, I had been this way several times before, so I led the way. And when I was across, I turned to watch my friend cross. And to my horror, he lost his balance. And as he was tipping over on one leg, everything in me wanted to leap out there and and grab him and bring him to safety. But there was no way that I could move fast enough to get to him And even if I could get to him, there was nothing to hold on to except for him. And he was falling. I had never felt so helpless, so worthless, wanting to save him, having no power to accomplish it. Now, some of you look really sad. I just want to tell you, he didn't fall. (laughs) By the providence of God, he regained his balance and he came across to the other side. But it illustrated to me, and it really struck me, that, that mercy without power is a pitiful thing, really. It's a pitiful thing to want to help someone and lack the ability. On the other hand, power without mercy, that's even worse. That's dreadful. You know some powerful people who have abused that power to hurt others. Maybe you've seen this among children in a bully that has a size and weight on his side and so he pushes around the other kids. Or maybe you've seen this in the corporate world where someone with authority has prematurely ended someone's career out of jealousy or spite. And just imagine then if that bully or boss had almighty power. That would be terrifying. Well, we give thanks to God because he is both almighty and he is merciful. He wills to show mercy to sinners and he has the power to forgive sins. 
He wills to show mercy to his people, and he has the power to meet all their needs. Almighty mercy affects or produces the good. God's omnipotence is spoken of in verses 2 to 4, where he is described as the God of gods, the Lord of lords, who alone doeth wondrous things. Some of the great wonders that the Lord has done are celebrated here in this psalm. In verses 5 through 9, they speak of his great wonders of creation. And then verses 10 through 20 celebrate the great wonders of his national deliverance of Israel. And in verse 16, it highlights the great wonder of his providential preservation of Israel in the wilderness. Now, children, do you remember uh, Bartimaeus? Do you guys remember that name, Bartimaeus? What was wrong with Bartimaeus? Anybody know? Bartimaeus? Sunday school teachers, please take note. He was blind. That's right. He was blind. And when blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was coming, he cried out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And when the people in the crowd told Bartimaeus to keep it down, he cried out even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And then what did Jesus do? He went over to Bartimaeus and he said, What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus said, Lord, I would recover my sight. And Jesus said, Go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight. Jesus is willing and able to show great mercy. Thank God for exercising his almighty power for your good. 1 Peter 1.3 exhorts us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So give thanks to God for almighty mercy. Second, give thanks to God for his wise mercy. God's mercy is exercised in perfect wisdom. And this is good because mercy without wisdom disables the good and enables the evil. Many of you have read the book by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, When Helping Hurts. It discusses the way that good intentions in poverty alleviation have often followed misguided methods and so done more harm than good. The harm was caused by people who were merciful, but they were lacking wisdom to understand the causes of poverty and the best ways of addressing it. It reminds me of the story of the boy who saw a butterfly struggling to emerge from its chrysalis. I guess you know this story. Maybe some of the kids haven't heard it. Feeling pity for the butterfly as it seemed to strain every muscle in its body to get free, the boy kindly assisted it by removing the chrysalis himself. 
when the butterfly came out of the chrysalis, then it just fell to the ground and began crawling around just like a caterpillar. And the boy was puzzled, and someone explained that, that the butterfly needed the struggle to come out of the chrysalis in order to build the strength to flutter its wings and fly. Without that struggle and all that exercise, all the butterfly could do was crawl on the ground like he had as a caterpillar. So here's this boy had mercy. But it was mercy without wisdom. Of course, the converse, that knowledge or wisdom without mercy could be just as abusive as power without mercy. Right? But God is both wise and merciful. And wise mercy it edifies It governs seasonably. God's wisdom is especially evident in his works of creation, right? In how he has organized the cosmos. And we hear this in verses 5 through 9. It says, To him that by wisdom made the heavens, stretched out the earth above the waters, made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, and the moon and stars to rule by night. So here we see... God's mercy, his covenantal love and faithfulness displayed in the good order, the reliability, the stability of the heavens and the earth and the seas with the lights to govern day and night. In how many ways has God's wisdom ordered your steps for your good? 1 Peter 4.19, the apostle encourages us to commit ourselves to the will of God, even in the midst of our trials, as we see God's faithfulness displayed in his works of creation. So Peter says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Going through hard times and... You need to be reminded to trust the Lord, even in the midst of your trials. Well, God has put reminders all around us in his works of creation to speak of his merciful wisdom. So thank God for wisely ordering the world for your good. So give thanks to God for almighty mercy, for wise mercy. And third, give thanks to God for redeeming mercy. Verses 10 to 15 speak of God's mercy in the expenditure of great power for the salvation of Israel out of Egypt. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn and brought out Israel from among them with a strong hand and a stretched out arm which divided the sea and made Israel pass through the midst of it but overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. Israel, they needed to remember all that God did for them when he freed them from slavery. God's redeeming grace was the foundation of their lives and of their loving obedience to God. When they forgot God's redeeming power and love, they turned from serving the Lord to serving their own appetites. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in the Confessing Church in Germany, which spoke out against Hitler's genocidal policies, he wrote a book and called, uh, entitled The Cost of Discipleship. In that book, he railed against what he called cheap grace 
in which the cost of salvation is made light of, leading to unchanged lives. You know, if salvation is no big deal, it's probably not going to lead to much of a difference in your life. He explains that where Christ's cross is not meditated upon, where Christ crucified is neglected, those who call themselves Christians will refuse to take up their crosses and follow. Cheap grace effects a false sense of freedom as a freedom from rule that leads to deeper bondage to sin. Grace is reduced to freedom from the penalty of sin without freedom from the power of sin. But costly grace, real grace, costly grace effects true freedom, freedom from the rule of sin to the rule of God. The Apostle Peter reminds us of the great cost of our redemption when he calls us to holy living. He says in 1 Peter 1, verses 16 through 19, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. When you think on the fact that God gave his only begotten son for you, thank God for paying the high cost of your redemption to free you for loving service to him. Give thanks to God for almighty mercy, for wise mercy, for redeeming mercy, and fourth, give thanks to God for preserving mercy. So what happens when mercy is short-lived? What happens, for example, when someone liberates a slave and then leaves him on his own to figure out how to live as a free man? What happens, often, is that the newfound freedom becomes its own kind of slave master, punishing the free man for every mistake. Negligent mercy exposes the vulnerable to loss. Mercy must persevere with the object of mercy if it is to reap the fruit of righteousness. Preserving mercy guards the vulnerable for their gain. Verses 16 through 20 celebrate God's mercy as a preserving mercy that not only liberated the Hebrews from Egypt, but also cared for them in the wilderness to bring them safely into the promised land. And so they're to give thanks, it says, to him which led his people through the wilderness, which smote great kings and slew famous kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bishon. These kings were the first and perhaps the most famous kings that stood in the way of Israel's inheritance of the land. If God had sent Israel out from Pharaoh to contend with those kings all on their own, his mercy of redemption would have ended in the the defeat and death of those Israelites. So he didn't do that. He persevered with the people even through their grumbling and complaining he preserved them through that inhospitable desert and he delivered those powerful kings into their hands 
And how many times has God preserved your life, and preserved your faith and your love, your hope, through various trials? Again, Peter speaks of God's preserving mercy in very powerful terms. In 1 Peter 1, and verses 3 through 5, I'll reread verse 3 so that we have the context for verses 4 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, so this is what the hope is unto, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. So you are being kept or guarded by the very power of God. Your eternal inheritance is reserved in heaven and you are kept by the power of God. So thank God for preserving your faith and causing you to persevere in the pursuit of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So give thanks to God for almighty mercy, wise mercy, redeeming mercy, preserving mercy, and fifth, give thanks to God for hopeful mercy. What I mean is mercy that lasts on into the future, keeps us looking forward. A desperate mercy, in contrast to hopeful mercy, subjects the soul to immediate solutions. What we sometimes refer to as immediate gratification. This is like when you're walking through the store with your kids and they're all bored to death until you get to the checkout line. And suddenly there's all these things they want right there in that little aisle where the checkout is, right? And immediate gratification is... Well, I'm picking on the kids, but let's face it, you know, when I see the candy bars, I'm battling with immediate gratification at that moment. And sometimes, right, the solutions of immediate gratification aren't good. They're, frankly, they're bad. The adulterer seeks immediate gratification of sexual desire because he doesn't trust God's purpose for the long-term joy of the sanctity of the marriage bed. The thief seeks immediate gratification, stealing someone else's property because he does not trust God's providence for his daily bread and for a treasure laid up in heaven. The covetous man cannot find a moment's rest in contentment because he tells himself that the heart wants what the heart wants rather than waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. It's a virtue, right? It's not one that we modern Americans have to deal with very much. But waiting on the Lord is a virtue. So we dig out mud holes in which we hope to collect some water rather than trusting in the Lord to lead us as a shepherd beside still waters, right? But hopeful mercy sustains the soul to wait upon the Lord and to wait for his best. So verses 21 to 25 speak of God's inheritance for Israel in the promised land. For so long it was spoken of as a promised land because it was not yet in their possession, but it was as good as theirs because God, who cannot lie, promised them. It says 
He gave their land, that is the land of these great kings. He gave their land for an heritage, an heritage unto Israel, his servant. He remembered us in our low estate. He redeemed us from our enemies. He gives food to all flesh. You remember after the exodus from Egypt, some rabble-rousers did not believe the promise of God, and, and they tried to lead the people of Israel to return to Egypt. So rather than hope in God, right, and, and keep looking forward and marching forward to the promise, they looked back to what was familiar, even though what was familiar was going back under taskmasters. God's mercy, his covenantal love, is full of promise, and God's promises have a purifying power when we trust in those promises. The Apostle John wrote of the purifying power of hope in 1 John 3, in verse 3, after saying that, that we will be made like Christ because we will see him as he is, he goes on to say, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. When troubles come your way, don't let the devil drag you down with despair, but hope in God and thank God for the purifying power of his promise. And finally, as you think on God's mercy as being almighty and wise and redeeming and preserving and hopeful, remember also the refrain that is echoed with every line of this psalm, for his mercy endureth forever. Give thanks to God for everlasting mercy. So the psalm begins with this line, O give thanks unto the God of heaven, for his mercy endureth forever. Or ends, ends with that. And that truth is repeated with every remembrance of God's past mercies. We look back on all God's mercies all through our lives, all through our generations, even going back to the apostles, to the prophets of the Old Testament, back to Moses and Abraham, even to Noah, and yes, even the mercy that God showed to Adam. And we see that his mercy endureth forever. And so thank God for the unfading inheritance of his glory. Peter described our inheritance from God, remember, as being incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. His mercy is eternal and unchanging. We change. We grow weary and faint, but God is relentless in his covenant mercy. This Thanksgiving, as you count your blessings... Meditate on God's manifold mercy to you in Christ Jesus. And so, may your gratitude be stirred to praise him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Father, for all your many blessings, make us truly grateful. For the gift of thy Son, make our hearts sing for joy. For the gift of thy Holy Spirit, make our souls cry aloud with praise. 
Through Christ we pray. Amen.